Chapter Eleven of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Lonsdale, north of the Sands. It is while rounding the sands of Morecambe Bay, or crossing the wide estuaries beyond it, that the tired Lancashire toiler catches his first glimpses of the Lake Mountains and exclaims, perhaps as young Ruskin did, on catching his first glimpse of the Alps, "Behold, beyond!" The stranger, says Wordsworth, in his Guide to the Lakes, from the moment when he puts his foot on Lancashire sands, seems to leave the turmoil and traffic of the world behind him. Lancashire beyond the sands consists, as we have seen, of three principal divisions, Cartmel, High Furness, and Low Furness. Cartmel is on a well-defined peninsula, bounded on the east by the Kent estuary, on the west by the Leven, and the southeastern shores of Lake Windermere. The train which has brought us from the furnaces of Carnforth past the beautiful green-wooded scenery of Silverdale and Arnside, and across the broad sands of Kent, where we catch glimpses of distant hills before and behind, swings round to cross the little river Winster, and so enter Cartmel, and therefore re-enter Lancashire, a mile and a half east of Grange. This pretty watering-place, nestling under the shelter of Hampsfell, may trace its name to the fact that it was once the site of a grange of Cartmel Priory. Leaving Grange, we are soon whirled across the narrow peninsula of Cartmel to the sands of Leven. Cartmel, however, merits more than a passing glance. I turned up the pleasant road from Cark to Cartmel once, after a fortnight on the fells of High Furness. Yet the country did not suffer by comparison. It has a quiet beauty of its own. For one thing, as I've said elsewhere, I heard the song of the lark once more. A sower was going forth to sow, bearing his seed in a basket under his arm. The trout glanced in the pretty beck by the roadside. On the right rose the bare but pleasant limestone slope of Hampsfell, but the greater part of Cartmel consists of Silurian uplands, rising to a height of over 1,000 feet at Gummer's Howe the bold and beautiful wooded hill that towers above the southeastern shore of Lake Windermere, and forms a prominent object in the landscape, just where the steamer sets out to sail up the lake. The Howe is really the highest part of the upland district known as Cartmel Fell, and on the slope of the hill overlooking the Winster Valley stands the lonely fell chapel which was erected as a parochial chapel of the Priory only about thirty years before its dissolution. The building, which has been restored quite recently, is literally the chapel of the fell, for there is no village near. It figures in Mrs. Humphrey Ward's Hellbeck of Bannisdale as Browhead Chapel. As we approach Cartmel from Cark, the little town does not come into view till we are close upon it, and the one object there that claims our attention is of course the famous church of the Augustinian Priory, founded in the 12th century. Only a fragment of the conventual buildings is left now, namely the gatehouse, which stands on one side of the present market-place. But the Priory Church is one of the glories of Lancashire, the finest ancient church in the county, says Mr. Cheetham, and surely he should know. The unique feature of the building, and it has no parallel that I know of at any rate in England, is the belfry tower set diagonally upon the lantern. This addition was made, apparently, early in the fifteenth century, and we do not agree with those who say that the effect is unpleasing. 
the lack of coloured glass in the great perpendicular east window gives a grey tinge to the interior but the massive clustered piers of the crossing part of the twelfth century church the beautiful semicircular arches of the chancel with pointed triforium is not this the only triforium in lancashire and perpendicular clear story above and the elaborate carving of the oak screens and stalls which mr bond signalises as one of the most remarkable examples of survival in design in the range of english art these fill us with admiration evidently the favourite among the misericord carvings is that representing a mermaid combing her hair ecclesiologists will linger over the much discussed harrington monument but the less curious visitor will perhaps turn to the beautiful marble which the devonshire family have erected in the nave to the memory of lord frederick cavendish who died in the service of his country and in defence of his friend he that hath clean hands and a pure heart the priory buildings as we have said have disappeared but some traces remain of their juncture with the walls of the church the present nave erected about the year fourteen hundred is probably much larger than its predecessor the view of the church standing in the broad green valley backed by the richly wooded hills to the west is very beautiful as seen from the slopes of hampsfell and here the tourist may linger and review the story of the centuries cartmel is said to have been given to st cuthbert with all its britons by king egfrith in the seventh century and it was probably because a church existed here long before the austin canons arrived there is documentary evidence of this that a portion of the first priory church was assigned to the original scattered population of the district again and for the same reason when the dissolution came and cartmel was one of the first houses to be demolished the little town was allowed to retain its own part of the great church and to this fact no doubt we owe the preservation of its walls while the priory buildings outside served as a quarry for the neighbourhood it is pitiful to think of this beautiful church with its rich carvings left roofless and exposed to the weather with the exception of the south aisle of the choir for more than eighty years the original parish comprised the whole of cartmel this is now subdivided into parishes which correspond mainly with the former chapelries of the priory one of these we have seen at cartmel fell grange is an exception and the fact that there was no chapelry at grange would seem to show that the population of the place is of recent growth though a grange of the priory may have been located there the beautifully clear river leven sweeping majestically under the arches of newby bridge like the rhone issuing swiftly from lake geneva and then rushing down its deep wooded valley to greenodd where Crake and Leven unite to form the estuary, divides Cartmel from Furness. And here, as we glance across the broad sands that bear so many names, and up to the background of mountains, we may be inclined to exclaim once more, Behold, beyond! For the battlements that throng the horizon to the north are no other than Dow Crag and the old man of Coniston, Helvellyn, Red Screes, and Ill Bell no precise boundary divides high from low furnace the latter may be said roughly to lie to the south of a line through broughton the term furnace fells again should perhaps in strictness be confined to the old chapelry of hawkshead reaching from the braithy to greenodd and bounded east and west respectively 
by the waters of Windermere and Coniston. The name is often given, however, to the high ground of Furness generally. Very picturesque is the varied story of this far northern corner of Lancashire. We have already traced its boundaries and made mention of the Roman highway that just grazed it on the north. That is all the sign we find here of the Romans. When they left, the district became a refuge for the Britons of Strathclyde, who in their turn practically disappear as the sturdy Norsemen run their long-beaked ships up the sands of the broad estuaries to the south. And they have left their impress, not so much in deeds as in names, of many a beck and gill and force and tarn and fell and pike and nab. Most interesting is it, and we shall hardly be treading on debatable ground here, to think, for example, that Iron Keld may be Arnie's spring, Finsthwaite, Finney's clearing, Rusland, Rolf's land, Hawkshead, Hakon Sita, and so on. And Mr. Collingwood has helped us much in our efforts to picture these early times by his charming romance of Thorstein and his other local sagas. Later years brought the Dane and the Norman, but they left little trace on these high fells, and when William the Conqueror, or William Rufus, included Furness in his gift to Roger of Poitou, because it was linked with Lonsdale by the passage across the sands, the district was, as we have seen, little more than a hinterland. Indeed, the very first mention in history of place names in High Furness is in connection with the boundary dispute between the abbot and the baron already recorded in our first chapter. We may perhaps add this further detail, that of the thirty men chosen to settle the boundary, half of the names are of Viking origin, including Swain, Ravenskell, Frostholf, Seward, Bernulf, Kebet, several dolphins, Ulfs and Orms, with the Irish Gospatric and Gilly Michael. A few are Anglo-Saxon, and the rest are Norman. We are speaking here of the middle of the 12th century, and these men would probably be chosen from among the tenants of Abbot and Baron, respectively. Of the famous abbey whose lords ruled for centuries over this isolated territory, we speak elsewhere. It was after the abbey was laid in ruins that the countryside woke to an independent life of its own, and won its livelihood by the various industries for which it has been known, iron smelting, bobbin making, sheep rearing, especially the famous Herdwick sheep still to be seen on the fells, and the like, and it was not till after Wordsworth had written about the lake district that the tourists began seriously to invade it. A few years ago, wrote Miss Martineau, this would be in the fifties, I think, it was some distinction even for a travelled man to say he had seen Windermere. Long centuries before that time, a town had sprung up in the broad green vale at the head of Esthwaite, where some Haken originally made his clearing. And this town, posing first as the head of a chapelry of the great abbey, with its manor court at Hawkshead Hall, now a picturesque farm building, and afterwards as the capital of the district, was for hundreds of years the centre of the life of High Furness. The motorist who steers his craft through Hawkshead today must go very slow, for even now, just as of yore, the quaint little town is a maze of tiny squares, short narrow streets and alleys, and curious nooks. Its numerous hostelries tell of the time when its markets were important events in the life of Furness. Much more interesting for us today, and indeed for humanity, 
is the fact that it was at Hawkshead that the poet Wordsworth received his early education, and there is no doubt at all that its beautiful surroundings constituted some of the most important formative influences of his life. Of this there is abundant proof in the many references to the neighbourhood in his poems, and more especially in the autobiographical pieces in which he is at so much pains to trace those influences. Over and over again he turns with peculiar fondness to these scenes of his boyhood, and it was his delight to revisit them. The cottage where he is said to have lodged under the care of Dame Tyson, the school where he has left his name carved upon a desk, these remain. But it is to the green fells that completely surround this little upland town, creeping up to its very doors, the mountain wall that forms such a grand panorama to the north, the choice scenery of the many beauty spots in the immediate neighbourhood, the lakes and mountains that are crowded around it, possibly the character of the dalesman among whom his lot was cast, for nothing is more striking than his interest in the homely scenes of humble life. It is to these that we must look as some of the main factors in producing one of our great poets of nature. We have already at the beginning of the first chapter mentioned one striking illustration of this, and his own account of it may now be given. Referring to the lines in An Evening Walk, beginning and fronting the bright mist, etc., line 214, he says, I recollect distinctly the very spot where this first struck me. It was on the way between Hawkshead and Ambleside, and gave me extreme pleasure. The moment was important in my poetical history, for I date from it my consciousness of the infinite variety of natural appearances which had been unnoticed by the poets of any age or country, so far as I was acquainted with them. And I made a resolution to supply in some degree the deficiency. It was a Hawkshead school composition written at about the same time, as the poet himself tells us, that put it into his head to compose verses from the impulse of his own mind. In the fifth book of the Prelude, he tells how, on his return from a term at Cambridge, he caught sight of Windermere, like a vast river stretching in the sun, and bounding down the hill, shouted for the ferryman, and how, once across the lake, he hurried on to that sweet valley where he had been reared. His grateful remembrance of the old dame, his eager welcome of old scenes and old friends, even to the terrier that walks in front of him as he composed aloud, and warned him by a look if someone was approaching. All these things show how every detail of the years he had spent at Hawkshead was graven on his mind. The snaring of woodcocks on cold autumn nights, scrambling up to look into ravens' nests, rowing or skating on the lakes, flying kites on the hilltop, playing noughts and crosses, or whist in the cottage in the evening, galloping out to Furness Abbey and back along the sands, and in other moods, the long solitary walks round Esthwaite in the early morning, the musings in the woods, the moments of holy calm. These are only some of the memories on which, in after years, he loved to dwell. Of these he has left a record in the early books of the prelude, and there, summing up what he owes to this beautiful district, he exclaims, the gift is yours, ye winds and sounding cataracts. Tis yours, ye mountains, thine, O nature. Hawkshead is still perhaps the most convenient centre from which to explore the true Furness Fells, whose scenery so impressed the young poet. 
The three lakes of which we have spoken already are within easy reach. We may make our way down to the wooded shore of Windermere, to Blelham Tarn, or over Clave Heights, or beside the singing Cunsey Beck that carries down the waters of Esthwaite, or by Sawry to the ferry, or by Lakeside under the shadow of Gummer's Howe. From this point, by Newby Bridge, there is a delightful return route northwards by Rusland Pool, haunt of the wild deer, and of so many water-loving birds, passing on the way at Force Mills a waterfall that after heavy rain reminds us of the Swallow Falls on the Clugwy. And so past Satterthwaite and Grisdale, where the valley sides have been so smoothed, presumably by glacial action, that they look as though they have been planed, or by Dale Park, whose name tells of one of the old hunting grounds, and thus over into the Esthwaite Valley once more. These valleys and the slopes above Windermere are clothed with the copse, round Coniston it is the conifers that predominate, within easy reach also are the old man and Wetherlam, with their attendant heights, and of the Duddon Valley beyond we have spoken in the first chapter. But the view par excellence, perhaps, is that from just above the tarns, and it is quite easy to forget that this lake is partly artificial. We pass the picturesque Hawkshead Hall on our way thither. Though we have travelled somewhat widely in Europe, Asia and Africa, writes Mr. H. S. Cowper, we can recall no place with so many varied beauties of colour and contour as this spot. The view from Tarn House is selected by Baddeley as perhaps the finest of all the near panoramic views of Lancashire and of Westmoreland. I have stood here on a sunny spring morning, when the winding lake, for all the world just like a Scotch loch, its outline broken by a few tiny islets and scallop peninsulas, was so still that the foreground was bright blue from the reflected sky, while above and beyond could be seen every gradation of distance, the dark and light green of pines and larches round the shore, backed by black rocks, relieved by the old gold of the bracken, and then, ridge behind ridge, the depth of colour continually diminishing, to the blue of the far hills, streaked with snow, from Wetherlam and the Langdales, right round to Red Screes. We have spoken of two routes round Lake Esthwaite. One is the five-mile walk that Wordsworth used to take before morning school. The other is by way of Sawry and the ferry and lakeside, returning by Rusland Pool. In the case of Lake Coniston, we have the option of sailing. But if we wish that the infinite variety of scene and associations that belong to this lake shall gradually grow upon our minds, we shall elect to accomplish the circuit of the lake on foot, starting, shall we say, at the head, and walking down the eastern shore, which is steeper and more thickly wooded than that on the opposite side. It is on this shore that we shall be reminded of the literary associations of the homes along the lakeside, of some of which we have spoken in an early chapter. The two islands which lie off this shore are not striking, but the more southerly Peel Island is interesting, as showing signs of glaciation, and some excavations carried out there years ago seem to show that it had once been inhabited. Soon after crossing the Crake, whose exit is more modest than that of her sister Leven, we reached the view at Lake Bank, of which we have given Mr. Collingwood's description already. And now, above the eastern shore, arise Helvellyn, Fairfield, and the Red Screes. About two miles further we swerve to the left by the pretty Torver Beck, and do not touch the lake again until we reach Coniston. The dominating feature of the landscape, however, has been the massif of mountains that blocks the view to the north 
blocks it so completely indeed that we lose sight of the fact for the moment that it is after all part of the great central mountain system of the lake district the whole of this bold mass it is well to remember is in lancashire being completely marked off from the other lake mountains by the bounding rivers of the duddon and the braithy as we have shown in the first chapter yet it forms an integral part of that system for it is possible as any lake tourist knows and as we can testify from pleasant experience to walk from the top of scarfell pike by way of eskhaws along a grand succession of heights round the head of Esdale by Bowfell and crinkled crags to the three shirestone at rhino's head here you may step over to lancashire and immediately climb to the top of the old man of coniston without having descended into the valleys at all but for that narrow isthmus of rhinos nevertheless this lancashire massif is really almost completely isolated by green river valleys and for that reason affords grand views of the other mountains while at the same time as we have seen it has been described as itself one of the most pleasing of all i have stood and looked at the old man from the south and asked why this should be so and the answer seemed to be that just as it is often truly said that in the english lake district there is not one dull yard of country so of the massif of the old man we may say that it has no dull feature are the mines a blemish they reach almost to the summit and i have scrambled from the topmost of them to the cairn in a blinding cutting hailstorm from the south-west a kind of welcome with which the old man sometimes greets his worshippers and then i have thought of the men who have climbed up here year in year out day after day in all weathers to earn their bread by blasting rock or splitting slate in sleet as well as in sunshine painfully hauling the product of their labours down the roads their own hands have hewn in the mountainside and ruskin's words come to you again these ever springing flowers and ever flowing streams have been dyed with the deep colours of human endurance valour and virtue thus the scars on the face of the hill appear rather as honourable wounds than disfigurements we have been careful to speak of the massif of the old man just as we speak of the massif of mont blanc as seen from brevent or flegere and the comparison is a reasonable one the peak known as the old man is only slightly more elevated than wetherlam fairfield greyfire cars and dow crag all members of the same system and all to be reached from the summit of the old man without descending into the valleys at all and it is easy for those who are familiar with the glaciers of switzerland shall we say to picture with certainty the time when the white glaciers streamed down from these heights by coniston and seathwaite and torver and greenburn and newdale one of the advantages possessed by the old man group over the other lake mountains is that as you stand on its summit you may by merely turning round enjoy a view over rugged mountain scenery or smiling green country extending to the sea nor are the views confined to the heights the scenery from the lower slopes especially to the north is full of interest i am tempted here to quote with permission from one who has known and loved these fells all his life and whom i have to thank for some kind assistance when i have been visiting them mr h s cowper of hawkshead who in his history of that chapelry writes referring to the slopes i have just mentioned here about colwith and elterwater 
where the noble valleys of the great and little langdales open out to meet the furnace hills we have features in plenty to charm alike the tourist the antiquary and the student of place names if we clamber over the ling-clad fell-sides that rise on the south of the Braithy, at every turn the splendid panorama of shadowed hill green plain and winding river changes and varies both in contour and colouring as we pass up the hill from colwith drifts with the breeze the ceaseless song of the force for the Braithy, in her long descent from rhinos has many a trip and stumble before she leaps joyously into the great pool of windermere many a tale is she telling now in her rippling tones could we but understand of the steel-clad veterans of rome stories can she tell too of later days when the long-limbed sons of the bay brown from exposure and with the brine of the northern waves still clinging to their curling hair and beards first forced their way through the tangled forest and scrub of Udale, and with their crescent-bladed axes formed the clearings or thwaites for their homesteads and thus drave into the ground so to speak such landmarks of nomenclature as we find in tilberthwaite and arnside above us rise the heath-clad points and rocks of black fell boric ground fell and iron keld different parts of the same rough range a haunt and breeding ground of wild duck and black game high on the west tower the Udale fells broken and black scored with milky gills and tufted here and there with stunted trees from overhead in mid-air comes the raven's croak as with extended sable wings he soars in widening circles but the eagle is gone in front is holm fell and here comes the yew computed to be seven hundred years old dating say from the time when the thirty sworn men marched up the valley in the twelfth century two voices have reached us from eden one tells of its natural beauty the other speaks of the sweat of the brow it is the second voice that we seem to begin to hear once more as sighting in the distance the smoke of barrow and ulverston we descend from high to low furnace the scenery is always beautiful but the type of beauty changes by degrees as we lose sight of the high fells that close the view to the north and move down to the silurian region the views are quieter the hills more rounded further south still we pass on to the ring of limestone country and beyond that even to the new red sandstone as at allithwaite furness abbey barrow and the isle of walney but if we here come once more into touch with industrial life we have not therefore left the land of history and romance barrow as we have seen is a town of almost mushroom growth but the abbey just behind it takes us back to medieval times of this we have something to say in the next chapter the graceful tower resembling a tall lighthouse that forms such a conspicuous monument on hoed head above ulverston reminds us that sir john barrow was born in a tiny village hard by what is now a busy town it is worth while to climb to the monument also for the sake of the view over land and sea and sand swarthmore to the south-west of ulverston is no longer a black moor but swarthmore hall is reverently preserved by the society of friends for here their famous founder came in sixteen fifty two it was here that he met the fearless and devoted woman who afterwards became his wife and loyal helpmeet 
Here he built his first meeting-house, which still bears his initials, and contains his treacle Bible. And it was here that, in the year of the Restoration, he was arrested, as was also, later, his high-spirited consort, who now lies in the little Quaker cemetery that overlooks the Ulverston Sands near Bardsea. Swarthmore, however, as we have had occasion to mention, has earlier memories still. For here the army supporting Lambert Simnel encamped in 1487 under the Earl of Lincoln and Martin Swartz, they having first landed on Peel Island, off the extreme southerly point of Furness, where the Norman keep of a 14th century castle can still be seen, on the site of one built, probably as early as the 12th century, as a necessary defence to this pirate-haunted coast. End of chapter 11